You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. We're going to be concluding our series in the book of Philippians, which is a a letter that was uh, written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, and we find in the New Testament. Before we get into uh, Philippians today, I just want to share a notice with you. I know we've had a few notices already, but I want to share a big one with you concerning the uh, two services format that we have now on Sunday mornings. Uh, Many of you will know, if you've been around in the church for uh, over six months, we went in February to have two morning services, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And uh, as the leaders of the church, we've really been pleased with how this has gone. We're really so grateful to many of you who have uh, got stuck in with serving on various teams. It's been a, uh, it was a big ask of many, many people to uh, step up and, and serve in extra places. And it's meant that we've been able to welcome more people into the church here. It's meant that we've been able to uh, de- deepen our sense of community here as well as uh, before it was very, very busy indeed uh, when we got together for one service. And I just want to let you know this morning that in August, just for the month of August, there's four Sundays in August, we're going to be reverting back to one service at 10 a.m., okay? So for those of you who come to this service, that's a little later, a little bit more time in bed or whatever you want to do, or as Matt will be doing, putting his washing out. And uh, so uh, just for the month of August, we're reverting back to one service. The reason we're doing that is that we anticipate that a number of uh, key uh, people who are volunteering on key teams here in the church will be going away over that month, and it will mean that we're going to, uh, but it's going to be a lot easier to uh, manage it with one service this time round. We believe that this church is going to continue to grow, so it may not be a necessary measure in the years to come. But for this month, in August, we're going to be back together, one service, and you'll be seeing a bunch of people that you don't normally get to see. And uh, we're going to be putting more chairs out so we're not all completely squished in, don't worry. Um, but So just get that in your minds. And then in September, we're going for it again, two services. We're going uh, to do a big push on that again. We're going to be uh, ensuring that people in our local communities are getting invites to come along to Hope Church. And I want to encourage uh, each one of you to uh, be inviting friends along. And uh, when we do get back into these uh, two services again, get here early. Be ready to welcome people who are, uh, who are visitors here. Um, just to say as well that the, uh, the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service, sometimes, uh, well, on a few occasions, the 9 o'clock has been the bigger service. But more often than not, the 11 o'clock has many, many more people in it. And we are looking to readdress that uh, balance. We're going to be asking some people to move to the 9 o'clock service. And we are uh, hopeful that we'll be able to bring in some youth work provision at the 9 o'clock service as well, which I know that will be a help for many people. So just to have that in your minds as well uh, going forward. Okay, let's read from Philippians chapter 4 together. We're going to read verses 10 through to 13, and then we're going to read some more of it later on. Paul's kind of concluding his letter to the Philippians. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want to speak today primarily about contentment. And uh, I've called this message Contentment Against All the Odds. This is the big thing that I think uh, each one of us are looking for. We're looking for happiness, right? We're looking for contentment. There was a guy called Nelson Rockefeller, who uh, is from one of the wealthiest and most influential families in the United States. He was vice president of the United States many years ago. He was once asked, what does it take to make a person happy? His reply was, just a little bit more. 
It's so true, isn't it? It's so true. We're, off, we're often striving for that little bit more that we think will make us happy. If we think back to 10 years ago in our lives, there was probably things 10 years ago that you were dreaming of and you thought to yourself, if only I had those things, then I would be happy. Then I would be content in life. And now you probably have those things and you're probably thinking, if only I had some other things, then I would really be content and happy in life. We're all searching for contentment. Now, the problem is that not only do our circumstances sometimes lead to us being unhappy, but that we are also in a culture that suffocates contentment. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. It's really, for us, trying to learn to be content is like a healthy plant trying to grow up through thick concrete. And even if it manages that, being sprayed down with poison regularly, it's so, so difficult to learn a life of contentment because we're in a culture that suffocates contentment. What do I mean by that? Well, firstly, I'm talking about the bombardment of advertisements that we receive each and every day of our lives. We live in a capitalist society, and there's good uh, parts and good aspects of that, but one of the aspects of a capitalist society is that it thrives on people buying more and more stuff, consuming more and more stuff. And in order to get people to buy more stuff, we're told that we need to have stuff. And so through advertisements that we consume, whether on TV or magazines or on the internet, we're told that we need to have more stuff to be happy. It might be bigger houses, it might be bigger cars, it might be fancier cars, it might be nicer gardens, it might be glossier hair, it might be better bodies, it might be less spotty faces, it might be exotic holidays in the sun, it might be sumptuously good food, it might be perfectly white teeth, it might be aftershave that makes us a babe magnet, whatever it might be, we are being sold stuff all the time. And this bombardment of advertisements, it breeds within us discontentment if we take it on board. That we're missing out on something if we don't have that product. How many of us thought that we needed a curved 50-inch TV before we knew there was a possibility of having a curved TV? How many of us knew that we had to have a nose hair trimmer before we saw an advertisement of a nose hair trimmer? And we thought, a couple of nose hairs is no big deal. But now, oh man, if I have two nose hairs dangling down, I'm in big trouble. I need to have this, this latest nose hair trimmer. And that's a ridiculous example. But we find things through advertisement that we never really thought we ever needed or ever wanted. But because we are told that our life will be more fulfilled if we have it, we take it on board and it breeds discontentment. We're living in a society that thrives on infiltrating our minds with the need for more stuff. Am I right? I'm right. It's even in more subtle ways as well. Uh, Sarah and I were driving to London recently. We pulled over onto the motorway. And we, as soon as we got onto the motorway, we saw a big sign that said sugardaddies.com, where rich men can meet young ladies online in order to have an affair or whatever. And it's breeding discontentment that their spouses aren't enough, that they actually need someone else to fulfill them and satisfy them. It's not even subtle. And I'm not really just talking about um, uh, the actual advert breaks on TV. I'm talking about uh, TV programs that are great. I'm not knocking them, but home improvement programs that make us think, oh, my house is really not as good as it could be. I need to invest a bit more money in it just to make it look a little nicer. Or I need to get a new house, which will uh, drive me into the ground trying to pay off a mortgage I can't afford. It's, uh, it's those kinds of shows. It's 
It's soaps and contemporary music that glorify sex and relationships, making you think, unless I have those things in my life, I cannot be content. We are bombarded with stuff that makes us feel like we have to have something else in order to be content and happy. Social media, of which I love to use, I think it's a great tool for many things, but Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we like to paint ourselves in a good light on those things, right? So we like to, we, we, we put out there a well-managed, a well-orchestrated uh, um, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? A persona, absolutely. We like to put our highlights reel on those things, don't we? It's not like we put on there, like, um, here's me peeling a potato, or here's me, you know, digging up some weeds in the garden. No, we like to put on the things that we do, or have, or say, or see, that will make us look quite impressive. That's okay. We do that, right? We all know that we do that, and yet we'll then go onto these social media uh, apps and look through Facebook, and we're consuming hundreds and hundreds of images of other people's well-managed highlights reels, and yet we think that's reality for them, and we think, oh, man, their life's much better than mine. Their life is so, so much better than mine. I wish I had a car like that, or I wish I had a house like that, or I wish I had kids because they look really cute, or I wish I didn't have kids because they wind me up, or whatever it might be. I wish my husband looked like that. I wish my wife looked like that, or I wish I had uh, the nice holidays that they have. Whatever it might be, we take on board loads and loads of images of people's highlights reels. We forget the fact that they might have some really rubbish days as well and some things in their lives that are downright rubbish, and yet we know that we're posting our highlights reel and so it's, it's an actual, uh, it's a mystery that we kind of, it breeds discontentment within us. And we think, I, w- I really wish my life wasn't as rubbish as it is. All these images scream at us, your life isn't good enough. And it'll only be good enough if you have what someone else has. We live con- discontented lives, I believe. I think many of us live discontented lives. Not only is this bad for our health, but it's actually terrible for our witness to the world. If you're a Christian here, many of us are Christians here. It's terrible for our witness to the world. It's terrible for the way in which we're trying to show people that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the saviour. If we're discontent in our lives, if we're miserable and believing actually we need some other things to be happy, it's, it's a terrible witness. We mustn't just think about our own, the own individualistic consequences of our discontentment and the kind of ill the impact it might have on our health and our uh, well-being, but actually the world needs to see people who are contented, genuinely contented. This world is looking for something different. I really believe that. It's looking for people that are contented with what they have. As Paul was able to say, whether I have lots or whether I have little, I have learned the secret of being content. It seems impossible to reach contentment. It seems out of reach. But Paul says this, I have learned the secret to be content. You can be content. It's possible. But you have to learn it. Contentment is attainable. Paul's able to say that uh, he's learned the secret of being content. And he doesn't really keep that secret for long. We'll see that in a moment. He says in the book of Timothy, as he's writing to uh, Timothy, he says that with godliness and contentment, there is great gain. So this is in our interests, right? It's in our interests to... Learn to be content with what we have. Because with godliness and contentment, there is great gain. This is a worthwhile pursuit. I hope that I'm painting this uh, to you in that way. This is a worthwhile pursuit. Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks as we've been going through uh, this book, uh, this book of Philippians, then let me explain that 
The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church in Philippi, Macedonia. He is in prison at the time, and it's, a, it's dire circumstances. And yet he's able to write, even in prison, I have learned the secret of being content. And in Acts chapter 16, when we see that this church was planted, we see that Paul and his friend Silas get thrown into prison. And there, you know, there would have been people all around them cursing the gods, cursing each other, just downright depressed and kind of despairing. And there's Paul and Silas in the corner of the prison, not grumbling, but singing worship songs. This is a guy who actually was content. Now, he wasn't superhuman, okay? You need to understand that. Paul wasn't superhuman. He wasn't any more special than you and I. God had got hold of him for a great purpose, but he wasn't superhuman. We can, even in difficult circumstances, even in circumstances where we don't have a lot of stuff, we can know contentment. Now, Paul said it's a secret. He didn't keep it for long, as I said. It says the secret is this. It was that he could be content in all circumstances because Jesus was strengthening him. This verse, verse 13, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength, is the most misquoted Bible verse, I think, out there. People have it on their fridges. They have it on their car bumper stickers, probably not so much in this country, but in the States and other places. They have it, I've seen it on people's tattoos before. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The funniest one was I saw it on a weightlifter who had this tattooed on his arm. And it was almost like, well, I can lift really, really heavy weights because Jesus strengthens me. And it's become almost like this Disney-esque kind of slogan of, if you just look inside yourself, you can do all things. If you really believe it in your heart, you can do all things. It's this kind of, uh, you know, you are really special. And if you just look and dig deep, you can do it. Well, actually, this is not what this verse is all about. It's literally saying that the way to be content is to know Jesus. Jesus enables you to be content in all circumstances. It's not that you can literally do anything because Jesus strengthens you. No, this is all about contentment. This is the context of this verse. It's about contentment. It's as simple as that. Paul is able to say that he's content, even that he's rejoicing always in the Lord, not because of his circumstances, but because Jesus Christ is strengthening him. The secret of contentment is not found in the circumstances themselves, but in the Savior who sustains you in the circumstances. The development of true contentment is impossible without Jesus Christ. The development of contentment is impossible without knowing him. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I just want to know contentment. I want to know that peace in my heart and that happiness. It's not, it's not possible without knowing Jesus. It's not that you will be striving after more and more and more and more and more and you'll find that it does not satisfy. The very things in your life right now that you would say, if only I had that, then I would be content. That, those, those very things will disappoint you. Even if they're really good things, they will disappoint you. Only Jesus can enable us to be content in all circumstances. The world would teach us that in order to be content, you get rid of the bad things, right? So if there's something that's making you unhappy, you get rid of it if you can. You get rid of it. The Bible instructs us to find contentment even in the most difficult of circumstances. The secret of true contentment comes not from a technique or by ridding ourselves of dissatisfying circumstances, but from knowing a person. The secret, the secret of contentment is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Now, the good news, the gospel that we talk about is about a person. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing this 
this God who's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus came so that we can know God. That's the good news. We get to know God now and for eternity. There's no greater thing than knowing him. Jesus has made it possible for us to know him through his life and death and resurrection. It's not by accumulating as much stuff as we can that we can attain contentment or by experiencing as much of the world as we can and going traveling or living a monastic lifestyle or taking a vow of poverty. No, it's daily being satisfied with Jesus. It's daily being satisfied with Jesus and experiencing the reality that there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus. That's what it's about. That's what contentment is about. The contented Christian is actually the dissatisfied Christian. The dissatisfied Christian who sees that there is nothing in the world that can really satisfy. Who has seen and tasted that only God alone can satisfy. That is the contented Christian. Paul is an old man when he's writing this. He may be coming towards the end of his life. He doesn't even know if after this prison sentence he's going to be executed. He doesn't know. And yet he, in his old age, is able to say, I've, I've experienced the adulation of many. I know, I've been popular, I've been, had people look up to me, I've had lots of nice things, I've had access to all kinds of uh, things that wealthy people get access to. And he's able to say, all of that's rubbish. All of that is rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. The contented Christian is the one who wants more of Jesus, who wants to know him more, who wants to pursue him more and more. St. Augustine, who was one of the early church uh, fathers, he he said this, I have seen the depths, but I cannot find the bottom. That was his experience of the pursuit of God. I've seen the depths, but I I haven't found the bottom yet. I'm going to go on, go on, go on, finding out more about this God, enjoying him more and more. Jesus, uh, in, in Luke chapter 10, visits some friends of his called Mary and Martha. Now, they, they've invited him to have dinner with him, dinner with them. And Martha's really, really busy with all the preparation. She's racing around in the kitchen, getting it all sorted out. And Mary just sits at Jesus' feet and listens to him. And Martha gets really wound up, I think as I would. Says, she says, you're not, you're not pulling your weight here with the preparation. And Jesus says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We're often like that, aren't we? We busy ourselves with good things, sometimes even serving in the church. We busy ourselves with those things, good things, but sometimes miss the point entirely. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing him, that being with him. We mustn't lose sight of that. This is the good news that we've been saved into relationship with this Jesus. Contentment is found in a pursuit of Jesus. That's the heavenly goal that Paul talks about. It's not found in getting a nice car. It's not found in having a nice holiday or a nice laptop. Those things will always fade. There will always be a better laptop or someone else who's better looking than the person you like and you want or a holiday that will be better. There will always be things that you'll be striving for. But Jesus Christ satisfies We come to find contentment as we enjoy him, as we enjoy pursuing him. As we enjoy the truth that we're now adopted into the family of God, that we're saved, we're set free, that we've got a bright future, a certain future with him. This is where we find contentment. There's no greater thing than knowing Jesus. And when we grasp it, 
It means we reject the bombardment of our society, which says you need to have more stuff. You need to have more things to be happy. You need to have this experience. No, we'll, we'll come to see Jesus as more valuable. It will mean for us, as it did for the Philippians, that even our wallets, even our bank accounts, will surrender to Jesus. Even those things will say, Jesus, this is all yours. Because we've come to see that he is better than all of the things that that money can buy. All the security that money can make us feel like we have. Jesus Christ provides even more than that. Much, much more. We can, like the Philippians, as we're going to see in a minute, we can surrender even our wallets to Jesus and say, it's yours. Do with it what you will. So the Philippian church were known for being a generous church. They actually had a reputation for being a generous church. We're going to see in a minute uh, that Paul writes, when he writes to the church in Corinth, in Greece, he boasts about the churches in Macedonia. He boasts about their generosity. They were a generous church. I want Hope Church to be known as a generous church, don't you? I would love for that to be our reputation. Not that we're the coolest, not that we're the, uh, the, you know, the nicest, whatever, whatever reputation we might uh, want. Actually, I really want for us to be known as a generous church. I want us to be known as a church that gives outrageously into the mission of God. I want Hope Church to have a reputation in heaven, that when we rock up in heaven and they say, were you from Hope Church? Wow, your church was incredibly generous. It got on board with the mission of God in the world today. It had sights set on reaching Ipswich, yes, but it had its sights set on reaching the world. It had its sights set on seeing many, many people saved. It had its sights set on serving the poor. I want us to have that reputation in heaven. I want to have that reputation amongst other churches, indeed. I want us to be a generous church. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, shall we? You don't have to turn there. I'm gonna, I think it might even come up on the screen. As I said, Paul's boasting to another church about this church in Philippi. He says this, For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They took an offering before, they gave an offering to Paul, they took an offering to help the uh, Christians in Jerusalem who were going through severe poverty. And this was, uh, this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave in incredible ways to alleviate the poverty of other people. It says in verse 5, as he's speaking about their overflowing generosity, he's saying they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. That means they gave you know, themselves first to God, they surrendered themselves to God, and then they actually gave willingly to Paul and his friends who were ministering to people in Jerusalem. When it comes to giving, that's the key. That's the key. It's first and foremost giving yourself to God. It's actually saying, God, all of this money that I have, however much you have, whether you have £10 or £10,000, all of this, God, is yours. It's acknowledging that you're a steward. I'm a steward of the money that we've got. It's God's money, and we're being asked to steward it. And it's when we give ourselves to God in that way that actually we're then able to give of our money to the mission of God. It's giving ourselves to the Lord first. As we give ourselves to God more and more, we're freed from the love of money. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money actually is not a good thing. We need to be freed from it. God wants us to be freed from it. As we give ourselves to him, we're freed from the love of money. 
from the, att- the attempts at attaining happiness in all kinds of uh, material things and experiences. I want to ask this morning, have you surrendered your finances to God? Have you surrendered your finances to God? We don't talk about giving much here. I know in our, uh, in our Western society, we don't really like to talk about money because it makes us squirm a little bit. But have you surrendered your finances to God? Does he know that you know that all that money is his? Have you surrendered your money to God? As a Christian matures, he sees that all his finances are God's. It's God's money. It's not, this is my money, Jesus. I've worked hard for this. I'm going to spend it as I jolly well want. No, it's, it's all his. It's all his. And we're stewards of it. It's God's stuff. Sarah and I, on Wednesday night, we uh, sat down and we looked at our finances together. And uh, we were able to look at what we were able to give last year, in the last financial year, and we were really surprised and pleased, actually, with how much we've given. And I thought to myself, ah, this is, yeah, we'll leave it as it is. But then I thought, no, I want to give more. I want to increase what we're giving, because I know that in my heart there is a tendency to say, oh, this is my stuff. It's something, a decision we have to make regularly. It's not a once once and forever decision. It's a decision we have to make regularly. This is not my money. This is God's, and I want to give as much of it away to his mission as I can. So we're going to look to do that. We're actually going to take action on that and say, God, we want to give more. We want to give more into this church and into all that it's doing here and elsewhere. Tim's message last week was about anxiety. It was fantastic. And he said, we get overly anxious about the things that we over-treasure. This could be the case for us. We get anxious about money. We get anxious about it because we over-treasure it. And we think it actually provides for us something that it cannot. We think it provides for us the security that it really cannot. We think it provides for us uh, a way to contentment, which it really cannot do. When we over-treasure things, we get anxious about them. It might be that we over-treasure our children. It's good to treasure them, right? I'm not saying that's the wrong thing. But if we over-treasure them and they, every, all of life is all about our children, then we will get overly anxious when anything goes remotely wrong. We'll get overly anxious. We'll lose sleep about it. It might be acceptance of our friends. It might be thinking, I overly treasure acceptance of my friends. I really, really want my friends to speak well of me or not even my friends, people I don't know. I want them to, I want them to respect me and I want them to, uh, to know that I'm a, you know, I'm, worth, I'm a worthwhile person. And therefore, when there's a, someone gives you a funny look that you haven't quite worked out what that look, what's behind that or someone sends you a text and you can't quite read the tone in it and you think, is that person attacking me here? Or what's going on? And you get overly anxious about it. It might well be that you overvalue what people think of you. And it's the same with money. So often we can overvalue it. It's responsible to look after our finances, yeah? It's, it's a responsible thing to do. It's not idolatry. But if we're losing sleep over it, if we're constantly thinking through, are we going to be okay? If we're constantly thinking through, you know, how can I, you know, can I, can I get more and more you know, money for myself? Then it's quite possible that we haven't surrendered our finances to God. So Paul, as he concludes this letter... He writes this. We're going to read verses 14 to 19 together, 20 together. We're going to come up on the screen. He writes this because the Philippians have sent him an offering. Even though he's in prison, they've sent him an offering for his, so he can be sustained there and so that when he's released, he can go on from there. Yes, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases 
to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's wrapping up his letter here, and he's thanking them for the gift. But I want to just pull out a few things as he's thanking them, a few things about giving that will help us. Firstly, Paul saw that their gift to him and their previous gifts to him amounted to them partnering with him in the work of the gospel. They were partnering with him. They may not have been in those other nations preaching alongside him and making disciples of people alongside him, but by their giving, they were partnering with him. They were actually, it was, if, it was as if they were there with him, preaching and sharing the good news with people and helping the poor. It was as if that's what they were doing because they had given into it to enable it to happen. They were partnering with it. And Paul's saying here, you did good. You did good by sending this money to me. It's my uh, conviction that the more we surrender our finances to God, the more that actually our hearts will buy into the mission in this world. Actually, our hearts will buy into the mission of this church. It will mean that we're really passionate about seeing this church be fruitful in Ipswich and beyond. I think the more we give into it, the more our hearts buy in. I really believe that. In fact, I think that if people are here and regularly amongst us and not giving, I'd be very surprised if your heart was actually bought in to this church being fruitful. I'd be very surprised. There might be reasons why you're not giving. There might be reasons why that actually you think, I can't, I can't do that. And there may be very, very good reasons for that. But for some, there are no reasons. And actually, I'd be very surprised if your heart is brought in to seeing this church being fruitful here and overseas. This church gives into our wider movement, relational mission, which is part of a, a big movement called New Frontiers, um, 1,500 churches in about 70 nations doing amazing things. We, although we may never go to those places, although we may never actually visit those churches, we, as we give of our finances, we are partnering with those churches. And that's hard to get our heads around sometimes. And we might think, well, how do we know that that money's been well used? We're partnering. These guys trusted in Paul. They knew that what he was doing was a good thing. And they were able to give freely into it. We have to get hold of the big picture. I love the enough evenings that we have, the enough prayer gatherings. We do them about three times a year. Next one's not until November. It's a long way off. But we get to see videos of people pioneering in places right around the world. And we get to see that what they're doing is a wonderful thing. They're being obedient to the Great Commission to go to all the nations. It's as we get a hold of that in our hearts that we will want to give into it. We want to say, look, this is, my, this is not just their business. This is my business. So we're able to partner with what God's doing around the world as we give. Paul also saw their gift as a good investment, verse 16. Alec Matia says, This is a proper motivation for Christians to cultivate, because by giving their money away, they would make for themselves purses that do not grow old, a treasure in heaven that does not fail. It's a good motivation to see your giving as a good investment. I know some people in the church, some of my friends here, love to invest wisely. They love to invest their money this is the very best investment of all. Those things are not wrong, but this is the very best investment of all, to give in to God's mission. Because we have, we are, by doing so, we're storing up treasure that doesn't grow old. We're storing up treasure in heaven. 
There's a writer called Stephen King. This is an amazing quote. This is a guy who, as far as I'm aware, is not a Christian. This is what he says about money. We come into this life naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going to go out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Stephen King, broke. Not a crying dime. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards, sooner or later things will begin to go wrong with the three things that you have that you can really call your own, your body, your spirit, and your mind. So I want you to consider making your life one gift to others. And why not? That's all, you have, all that you have is on loan anyway. This is a guy who, as far as I'm aware, is not a Christian. And yet, he has got something about this that we're not going to be able to take what we have with us. We're not going to be able to take it through into the next life. But we can store up treasure for ourselves in heaven by being generous with what we do have in this life. Giving into the mission of God. This is storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. It's a guaranteed investment. There's a guaranteed return. It's all on loan anyway. It's not ours. We can't take it with us. Paul says their gift was a fragrant aroma to God. Verse 18. I love that. It's like God is, you know, when you wake up and you can think, oh, I can smell bacon cooking. Or if you're a vegetarian, you might be coffee or whatever it might be that you can just think, oh, I love that smell. God loves the smell of people giving sacrificially. He loves it. Jesus sat, didn't he? He watched the people going into the temple and putting their coins into the offering. And there was a lady who had next to no money. She put in two coins. But that was actually far more than the wealthy people had put in, even though they may have physically put in more money, by her giving sacrificially, she was putting much more in than these rich guys were. Jesus saw her heart. It was a good smell to him. It was a good smell. It was a good aroma. Sacrifice is pleasing to God. Not just words, but trust. Because when we sacrifice, we have to trust him. And faith pleases God. It really does please God. Finally, their gift came with a promise of provision. Paul says, in keeping with his glorious wealth, this is another version I'm reading from, in keeping with his glorious wealth, God will meet all your needs. I have yet to meet anyone, I've yet to meet anyone who has surrendered their finances to God and has said, all this is yours, God. I want to give generously into what you're doing. I've yet to meet anyone who, for whom God has not met their needs. I've yet to meet them. If you, if you know anyone, I want to meet them. I want to meet them. I've yet to meet anyone who said, God, this is all yours. I want to give as much as I, as I can away. I'm not going to pursue uh, contentment in all these kind of earthly things that I could be pursuing. I want to give it all away. I want, to, I want to be generous with my finances. I've yet to meet anyone for whom God has not met their needs, for whom they have not had all they really need. I've yet to meet them. So I want to encourage you today, just as we come to close, I want to encourage each one of you, whether you're here for the first time or for the 50, 50th time or the 500th time, I want to encourage you to consider are your finances surrendered to, to God? Are they in his hands? Are you saying, God, these are all yours? I want to serve you with these finances. And maybe if you're, if you're here and you, you're not giving into the life of Hope Church, I want to encourage you and I ask you to consider, why don't you think for maybe three months we're gonna, I'm going to give into the life of the church here? It might be a small amount of money at first. It might be actually you might think, I want to give a proportion of my income to the life of the church. Why don't you see... See what God does. Do it for three months and see what God does. If you're giving regularly here already, maybe you'd like to consider giving 10% of your income. That's a, a, a principle that we see in the Old Testament. Where God's people would give the first 10% of their, 
their, their, their livestock or their grain or whatever it might be into God's hands as, as a sacrifice. And I think as, as Christians, we've been shown so much more grace and mercy than those Old Testament believers have been shown. I think that really 10% of our, of our finances, that should be our floor, not our ceiling. It should be, let's look at, see if we can give even more than that. So maybe if you're giving regularly here, why don't you consider? Why don't you consider giving of 10% of your income? And if you're doing that already, why don't you consider, is there anything else we can give? Do it for three months. See what God does. I want to encourage you, if you haven't um, set up a standing order, that really helps us as a leadership team and with our uh, financial plans that we can know how much we can budget for, what things we can give ourselves to. On the bottom of these envelopes that you'll have in front of you, there's our account number and um, sort code number. And you could set up a standing order so that it just comes out of your account regularly. Many, many people in the church do that. It's a good way so that we can actually project how much money uh, we'll have to be able to uh, spend on ministry and uh, to give away to other church contexts. We'll know how we can do that uh, as people give by standing orders. So that would be something I'd really encourage you all to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to this earth. Thank you, Father, that he came to set us free. He came to set us free from the many things that we've spoken about this morning, the love of money and the pursuit of happiness that just leads to disappointment. Lord, I thank you, Lord Jesus, you've set us free from our sin and our shame. On the cross, Lord Jesus, you took our sin and our shame. The, the punishment that we deserve for the wrongdoing we've done, you took it upon yourself, Lord Jesus. I want to thank you that you didn't remain in the grave, that you rose victorious. That, Lord Jesus, you are our victor. You're the one that we can applaud and sing to and enjoy because you were victorious. You rose again from the grave. And Lord Jesus, as we're just looking at this uh, subject of contentment today, we want to pursue contentment. We want to have contented lives as we pursue you, Lord Jesus. We don't want to strive after all of the things that this world would bombard us with, although many good things in that. We want to come to see that you, Lord Jesus, alone are satisfying. Lord Jesus, knowing you, pursuing you, daily living in the good of all that you've won for us, this is what will lead us to contentment. I want to pray, Lord, that for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, that you would come and show them today that you alone bring the contentment that our hearts are yearning for, that you alone, you alone will fill that hole. You alone, Lord, not things, not stuff, not holidays, not experiences. You alone, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Maybe if you're here this morning and, and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, just with everyone's eyes closed, why don't you just say to Jesus this morning, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want you to come into my life and change me. I want, you to, I want to know the forgiveness that you've made available through the cross. I want to know it. Put it in your own words. Tell him, tell him exactly what you want him to do. He, was, he will hear you. If you've, if you've prayed that under your breath or if you pray it, maybe as we sing in the moment, why don't you tell someone? Why don't you tell someone? Why don't you tell the person you've come with today? Tell someone that you might know here. Say, I've prayed this. I want to know Jesus. Will you help me? Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.